0: This is a Rooster Teeth production. August 24th, 2001. Air Transat Flight 236, an Airbus A330 with 306 people on board, is flying over the Atlantic Ocean en route from Toronto, Canada to Lisbon, Portugal. Just over five hours into the flight and 170 miles from land, engine number two flames out. The pilots descend to a lower altitude to fly on one engine and then 13 minutes later their only remaining engine flames out as well. The RAT deploys and the pilots know they can only glide for about 15 minutes before needing to ditch in the ocean. What happened to Air Transat Flight 236? Are they able to make it to land in time? And why did the engines flame out? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello. We've got another plane with no engines at cruising altitude. Yeah. Over the ocean. And the rat's doing its thing. The rat deploys. I felt like I had to, had to immediately <laughs> <laughs> acknowledge that the rat is there. We'll get a little more into that in just a second. Before we get into the meat of it, I want to remind everyone to follow us on social media at Down Pod for images and videos and things that maybe we can't necessarily convey in an audio podcast. You can always... Get more information there. We got Twitter. We got Instagram. We got Facebook. We have a YouTube channel now.
1: Yeah, it's it's uh, a lot of people wanted, I guess, wanted to listen to podcasts on YouTube. So Yeah, that
0: doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be uploading video for this podcast. It's just a way for people who um, are on YouTube all the time to listen to the podcast. It's the exact same content. There's nothing extra there. But if you have the YouTube app and you like to listen to stuff on YouTube, that's an available option as well now. I hear yeah. people like YouTube. I mean— I'll listen to stuff on
1: YouTube I got YouTube premium so I'll, I'll, you can listen to it like without it, the app being open
0: so I mean I do I do too I don't want to brag about being a fat cat but I mean I, I do too
1: hey I, I only did it because I had a three month trial and then I got, got, <laughs> got sucked and then I got suckered in because I'm like I can put stuff in my pocket and listen to it <laughs> all right, well it's, I,
0: I, but still it's all uh, this podcast is also available uh, on all podcast platforms so wherever you want to listen to hopefully we're there. But back to the task at hand, specifically talk today talking about Air Transat Flight 236, passenger flight, like I said, from Toronto, Canada to Lisbon, Portugal, back on August 24th, 2001, a couple weeks before September 11th. So I feel like maybe it's a little forgotten. Like this incident happened and then uh-huh. people very quickly, you know, there was other stuff going on in the world that people became uh, more focused on. For example, I mean, I, I I had forgotten about this one until, you know, Dennis, our producer, Dennis and I were talking about incidents we could cover and... You know, we looked this one up. Like, oh right, yeah, this did happen. When you first uh, said the date, I was like, wait, is that right before or right after? Mm-hmm. It's a couple days it, before. Yeah, well, a couple weeks, maybe two weeks. I think August
1: and September are sneaky that way. You always like is like which one goes <laughs>
0: first? September is sneaky. Let's make a shirt.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is a tangent, but I did have a conversation with someone who thought that June was the fifth month of the year. Mm. And they were no. like, oh, my God, I've been putting dates wrong for the entire month. Were you talking to
0: a 10-year-old? No, it was an adult. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Well, June is six, May is 5th, just yeah. so everyone knows. So Air Transat Flight 236 was crewed by Captain Robert Pichet, who was 48 years old, with 16,800 flight hours, and First Officer Dirk de Jaeger, who was 28 years old, with 4,800 hours. The aircraft was a two-year-old Airbus A330, with 10,433 flight hours and 2,390 cycles. And just a refresher for anyone who's new, a cycle just like is an entire, basically an entire flight for a plane. When it's depressurized, pressurized, and then depressurized again. That's one cycle. And there were 293 passengers and 11 flight attendants on board as well for a total of 306 people. So Air Transat, flight 236, they were supposed to depart from Toronto at 1210 a.m. universal time with 47.9 metric tons of fuel on board, but they were delayed about 42 minutes until 1252 a.m. universal time. And they ended up taking off with 46.9 tons of fuel at takeoff. It sounds like a a whole ton of fuel, but still plenty of fuel for this journey they're about to take. Mm -hmm. According to the crew, the flight progressed normally until they crossed the 30 degree west longitude line, which is, you know, right over the Atlantic Ocean, a little more than halfway between Canada and Europe. That sounds like the like a really bad place for
1: plane stuff to go wrong because <laughs> it's right in the middle.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was a little a little over the middle, but yeah, it's uh, there's not a lot out there. So at 5.03 a.m. Universal Time, the crew observed unusual engine oil indicators on the number two engine. Specifically, the plane was telling them they had low oil temperature and high oil pressure. High oil pressure can be a symptom of oil contamination, but it's not necessarily... 100% true.
1: Oil contamination is in like oil is in places where it shouldn't be, I
0: assume. As in there's extra things in the oil that shouldn't be, like there's oh. contaminants in the oil. Okay, so I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> the opposite of what you said. Yeah. So they pulled up the electronic centralized aircraft monitoring system, uh, which is called ECAM, and the oil indications were communicated by radio to a dispatcher at the company's maintenance control center. So basically, they pull up the air looking at it and they call maintenance like, hey, we got this thing going on. Just to see if there's any uh, input maintenance can give them about this. At this point, the captain thinks that it's just computer error. Like, this is an mm-hmm. unusual message. They, they're really not sure. It's not affecting their flight at all. So they think that it's just uh, some sensors might be messing up on the plane. Okay. About 30 minutes later, an advisory message popped up on the Ecamm's engine warning display. The crew selected the fuel Ecamm page and noticed a fuel imbalance between the left and right inner wing tanks. And if you remember, most planes carry their fuel in tanks that are in the wings. And when they pulled up this error message, it was telling them the left tank had way more fuel than the right tank did, Hmm. which doesn't make any sense because two tanks, two engines, they should be going at more or less the same. So they said, well, that's weird. So what they did was in order to correct the imbalance, they opened what's called a crossfeed valve between the tanks, So it allows the fuel to move between the left and the right tank. And they turned the right wing fuel pumps off. And this just... Let's the fuel in the left-wing tank feed into the right engine. And according to the procedure and the checklist that they have, this is what they're supposed to do as long as there's no fuel leak. (laughs) The checklist is very clear about this. I was
1: about to say, it's like, but what if it's leaking? Then they're just dumping all their fuel (laughs) into the...
0: Yeah, you're right. And a good question you might ask yourself at this time is, why is the fuel imbalanced? Yeah. But again, I think that at this point, the captain is thinking that there's something wrong with the sensors on the plane. He's thinking that there's some kind of computer malfunction. Uh-huh. At this point, he probably doesn't think that there is actually a fuel imbalance. He th- probably thinks that his sensors are telling him the wrong thing. But he's opening up the crossfeed valve out of an abundance of caution. Okay, that's speculation on my part. I just want to point that out. At 5:45 a.m. universal time, the fuel on board dropped below the minimum required fuel to reach Lisbon, and the crew initiated a diversion to Lajes Airport on. Terceira Islands in the Azores. I probably butchered that. I apologize. Three minutes later, the crew advised Santa Maria Oceanic Air Traffic Control that the flight was diverted due to fuel shortage and the amount of fuel had reduced to seven tons. The crew tried to explain the sudden loss of fuel and asked the flight attendants to visually check the wings and engines for possible fuel leaks, but they couldn't find anything. Remember, it's dark. The sun's down. So uh-huh. the flight attendants grabbed flashlights and they're like pointing them out the windows, trying to see if they can see any fuel leaking. Just through the windows, like looking for fuel just flying off right like can you imagine if you're asleep on the plane and the flight attendants like looking over you and it's like oh don't worry go back to sleep I'm looking to see if fuel's leaking out of the plane
1: <laughs> yeah well, yeah would they have to go to the part where passengers are I to the they windows would.
0: they're looking out yeah yeah they're I mean they're they're in the cabin looking you know through the windows where the passengers are huh. but like I said it's dark and they've only got you know a little handheld flashlights they don't see anything so they they you know they report back they can't they can't see anything they can't determine if there's a fuel leak or not At 5.54 a.m. universal time, the crew turned on the right-wing fuel pumps and turned off the left-wing fuel pumps. This established crossfeed from the right-wing tanks to both engines, and the crew did this to counter the possibility that the fuel loss was the result of a leak in the right tanks and to try to use it before it all leaked out. So at this point, they're thinking, maybe there is a leak in the right tank. Let's use all of the fuel in that tank before it leaks Uh out, and then we'll fall back to the left tank. That's smart. The crew then contracted air traffic control to let them know about the low fuel quantity uh, readings. And at this time, the amount of fuel had dropped to 4.8 tons, which is 12 tons below the planned amount. So 24,000 pounds of fuel are gone at this point. Uh-huh. And they're down to what? 12? They're down to 4.8, which is 12 below where they should be.
1: Hmm. That seems like a pretty big uh,
0: disparity. Yeah, it's, uh, they've lost quite a bit. The crew reported to air traffic control. They could not determine what the problem was and that the fuel indications were continuing to reduce. And they thought that fuel was leaking in the right-wing inner tanks. At 5.59 a.m., the crew reported that the fuel in the right tank was at one ton, and the fuel in the left tank was at 3.2 tons. Air traffic control asked if the leak might be in the left engine, and in response, the captain momentarily reselected the cross from the left tanks. The crew then turned on all the fuel pumps when the remaining fuel dropped to 1.1 tons. So he turned it back on? Yeah, so that it wasn't drawing just from the right tank. He turned the cross back on. Because remember, initially... Well, what, yeah. they were, what they were doing at that point was they were trying to use it all in the right tank, suspecting that the leak was over there. But then they reselected it to test because air traffic control says maybe it's your number one engine, maybe it's your left wing. Yeah, they just need to figure out what
1: which one's leaking.
0: If, if someone had gone back and thought about it for a second, maybe they would have realized it was the right side because that's the one where the fuel imbalance was. Yeah. Coincidentally, now that we're, <laughs> we're at this point, I'm going to deviate from what uh-huh. we have written here for just a moment. Remember earlier I mentioned how there was a low oil temperature and high oil pressure in the number two engine? And I said high oil pressure could be a symptom of oil contamination? Yes. Like something is in the oil? <gasps> like gas? <laughs> you know what also might cause the oil temperature to drop down? If there's a bunch of fuel flowing over the fuel oil heat exchanger cooling it down? Oh, no. No. So, yeah, it's pretty clear at this point. Like in retrospect, you can look at those earlier warnings that they dismissed as being a symptom of that's definitely where the leak is. There's something wrong on that side of the plane. Yeah. So at 6.13 a.m. universal time, while the aircraft was at 39,000 feet and about 150 miles away from Lages, the right engine flamed out. So it was at that point, the right engine was just exhausted fuel. So they had no more fuel. Uh-huh. So it's it's out. The crew notified air traffic control and said they were now descending. Two minutes later, the fuel on board was 600 kilograms, which is what about 1,300 pounds, so less than a ton. Mm-hmm. At 6.23 a.m., the first officer declared a mayday. Three minutes later, the left engine flamed out as well. So 13 minutes after engine number two flames out, engine number one flames out as well, and they're left with no engine power.
1: And where they're, wait, they're uh 100 miles from land?
0: Well, at this point their altitude is 34,500 feet and they're 65 miles from the largest airport. Okay. Just to re re reemphasize this, this is an airport on the Azores Island. This is not their destination airport in Portugal. It just happens that they're kind of close to an island with an airport. Which is lucky. Which is lucky. Earlier, when this plane first took off from Toronto, you know, they filed their flight plan to get over to Europe, to get over to Lisbon. And there was a lot of traffic in the skies. There's a lot of, you know, planes making this route. So air traffic control actually modified their flight plan and told them to fly 60 miles south of their intended flight plan. And it's because of this that they're actually able, that they're so close to the Azores. If they had been on their actual flight plan, they would have been another 60 miles north of here, out of range of the Azores. Okay. So they lucked out that their flight plan got modified and that they ended up so close to an island with an airport. airport. Huh. Okay. So like I said, they were at 34,500 feet. So they're pretty much at cruising altitude. This is the altitude they're supposed to be at when they're, you know, they've only mm-hmm. got one engine. So they completed all the engine flame out procedures and established a descent profile for the airport. Due to the fact the engines were both out, the aircraft lost most of its power. But as we've talked about before, emergency power was supplied by the RAT. The RAT is the Ram Air Turbine. So when the engines are out, basically it's like a little propeller that pops out from the bottom of the plane. And the speed of the wind hitting it makes the propeller turn, which allows it to provide some very basic electrical power for very critical systems on the plane. So almost everything's out and not working, but because of the rat, they're able to maintain some control over the plane. Yeah. Hopefully it's something you'd never see in person.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a really good uh, drawing that at B2K20 did uh, on Twitter of what she imagines the rat looks like. And it's very funny.
0: <laughs> yeah, we mentioned that in last week's episode. And, but uh, yeah, if you follow, if you check out Black Box Down on Twitter, you can see we retweeted that last month, back on June 8th. So about five minutes after the power failure, the cabin lost pressurization and the oxygen masks deployed. If you remember, the cabin is pressurized by bleed air from the engines. So when the engines are out, there's no more air pressure coming into the cabin. So the air pressure slowly starts to leak out. Uh-huh. So, you know, uh, the oxygen masks come out and, you know, people have to put it on because they're still pretty high in the air. And the captain doesn't want to go down quickly to get to a lower altitude so they can breathe because he can't get back up. There's no engine. So, you know, people <laughs> <they feel laughs> have to put the oxygen masks on. Some of the flight attendants reported that there were problems with oxygen flow for some of the masks in the areas around the left three, right three and right two doors. Also, the oxygen container door at the position of the right two door didn't automatically open and the flight attendants had to use a manual release tool to open the container door. So over the next several minutes, air traffic control assisted the crew by giving radar vectors and flashing the runway lights. The flight was at an altitude of 13,000 feet when they were eight miles out from uh, runway 33. At this point, they realized they're a little too high and a little too fast for uh, this landing. So the captain started a 360-degree turn in order to lose altitude and lowered the landing gear during the turn as well. Then he had to bust out some S-turns uh-huh. on the final uh, to lose altitude. So he's, you know, imagine being on this plane uh-huh. and then like... You see land, then you don't see land, and then, then you see land again. <laughs> they're like, we're going to circle around for a bit. And they're like, what the? We don't have any fuel. <laughs> right, yeah. But if they come in too high and too fast, they're going to overshoot the runway. And because it's an island, you know, at the end of the runway are some fields. And then at the end of the fields is a cliff <laughs> into the ocean. Mm-hmm. So it's like, they they got to stop on the runway, I guess, you know, to try to be as safe as possible. Yeah. So eventually at 6.45 a.m., the aircraft crossed the threshold for runway 33 at about 200 knots and touched down hard 1,030 feet down the runway and bounced back into the air. The second touchdown was at 2,800 feet and maximum braking was applied. Before I get into the nitty-gritty about this landing, think about how long they were in that plane with no engine power gliding. It was about 15 minutes of glide time. So I can't imagine being a passenger on that plane, hearing the engines go out, and it's just like quiet, except for people crying and screaming for 15 minutes. Everyone inside knows that the, the plane's like has no fuel, I guess, right? So they're all freaking out. Well, they know that the engines are off, which, is, yeah. uh, which has got to be terrifying. So because they had no engine power, many of the systems to slow the plane down were inoperative. Like they couldn't deploy spoilers. They couldn't turn on the reverse thrusters because they had no thrust to begin with. So they just had to rely on uh, their brakes to stop the plane. The aircraft came to a stop 7,600 feet down the 10,000-foot runway. After it stopped, small fires started in the left main gear wheels, but they were immediately extinguished by the crash rescue response vehicles that were waiting in position for the landing. So, I mean, these fires break out because the brakes are getting so hot because that's all they're using to try to stop this plane. Oh,
1: and there's leaking fuel.
0: Well, the fuel's all gone at this point, oh. so I they guess, don't have to okay. worry about that. But well, I mean, you want to say maybe that also, I hate to say this, that maybe also helped them out because the plane was lighter because it had no fuel. So they were able to stop on the runway. <laughs> it's like, wow, we were so lucky to not have fuel. <laughs> yeah, great. The captain, of course, ordered an emergency evacuation. And during the evacuation, all doors and slides functioned normally except for the left three exit door, which only opened about 20 to 25 centimeters. What is that, like 10 inches or so?
1: Uh-huh.
0: Uh, and the passengers were redirected to the other exits. Uh, it was reported that some passengers were reluctant to leave the plane and they had to be aggressively encouraged to do so. And many passengers attempted to leave with their carry-on baggage. And we've talked about this before. Mm. If you ever have to do an emergency evacuation from a plane, you leave your bags behind. <laughs> it's not that yes. important. You're going to slow people down. You want to get you want to not only get yourself off the plane, but you want to make sure everyone else can get off the plane as quickly as possible. Yeah. So the evacuation was completed in about 90 seconds, which is Excellent. That's what you want. That is good. And 14 passengers and two flight attendants received minor injuries and two passengers received serious injuries during the emergency evacuation. We've talked about this before, too, about how, you know, the captain has to be sure before he calls an emergency evacuation because he knows some people are going to get hurt when you do an emergency evacuation. But luckily, it was uh, nothing too bad. Just two passengers with serious injuries. The aircraft suffered structural damage to the fuselage and the main landing gear. So, I mean, of course, the big question is, How can a plane run out of fuel at cruising altitude? How does this happen? The investigation was carried out by the Portuguese Aviation Accidents Prevention and Investigations Department. That's a mouthful. Mm -hmm. In the investigation of the engines, they found an L-shaped crack on the inlet fuel tube wall of the number two engine. The crack was about three inches long and an eighth of an inch wide. They also found that the hydraulic outlet tube, you know, I'm going to go on a tangent here again people who listen to this podcast have made me very self-conscious about the way I say the word tube. I guess I say, <laughs> I say tube, but it's supposed to be tube. How do you say it, Chris? I say tube. Okay. I like, guess. But Yeah, you say tube. I say tube. I add like a Y or a double O in there. Uh, I can't change myself. I'm not going to change myself. I'm going to keep saying tube. So y'all are going to hear me talk and say it that way. So the investigators also found that the uh, hydraulic outlet tube for the rear hydraulic pump uh, was in hard contact with the fuel tube. So basically, they noticed that this smaller hydraulic outlet tube is rubbing up against the fuel tube. And the cracking on the fuel tube extended to both sides of the area where the tubes came into contact. So it seems like this smaller hydraulic tube just rubbed up against the fuel one and caused a crack right in that area.
1: Over how long did
0: was that rubbing? Well, that's the question, right? Well, question is, how long was it rubbing? And the other question is, why was it rubbing? Uh-huh. So they figured out that there was a mismatched installation of the post-mod fuel tube and the pre-mod hydraulic tube, which I'll explain what that means in a minute. So on July 31st, 2000, a little over a year before this incident, the Wright engine underwent a shop visit in Hong Kong and it was supposed to have its engine dressing modified in accordance with a service bulletin. And we've talked about service bulletins before. It's like a an alert that something needs to be modified or changed for safety purposes. So they had to modify this engine to comply with a service bulletin. However, the facility mm-hmm. in Hong Kong did not have the necessary parts, and the engine was shipped to and stored at the Air Canada facility in Toronto. On August 1st, 2001, which is just a couple weeks before this incident, mm-hmm. the engine was sent to Air Transat in Mirabel, Quebec, because they requested a spare engine. When it arrived in Mirabel, it was processed in accordance with Air Transat maintenance procedures, and the process only involved an inventory check and verification that the parts on the carry forward item list were available. The engine was positioned at Mirabelle as a contingency measure, and there were no immediate plans to install the engine on a company aircraft. So basically, they just wanted a spare engine to have it. They didn't have any plans to put it on a plane. They just needed a spare engine just in case.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: At this point, it was not required for service bulletins to be checked as part of this type of inventory check. Okay. During the initial inspection of the engine, it was assessed that the required parts were available if and when an engine change of one of the company's A330s became necessary. However, the engine receiving process did not identify that the configuration of this engine did not match the configuration of the other A330 engines at the company. The investigators think this was not noticed by maintenance personnel for a few reasons. First of all, the A330 engines that Air Transat used were all in a post-service bulletin configuration, and the company personnel had never been involved with pre-service bulletin engines. So... All of their engines had already had this service bulletin applied to them, mm-hmm. and they had not been involved with pre-service bulletin engines. And this was like a weird hybrid where it was in the process of being modified for post-service bulletin, but uh-huh. they didn't have the parts in Hong Kong, so they didn't finish that update to this engine. Okay. So this engine was like, they didn't finish what the work that should have been done on it. And the physical appearance of the pre-service bulletin and post-service bulletin configurations were very similar, and they could not be identified through a cursory inspection. So
1: so how how
0: not working was this engine? <laughs> so it needed the hydraulic pump. The hydraulic pump for the post-service bulletin engine was not installed in this engine. And the part number... So it, it looked fine. It just needed this hydraulic pump to be updated. Mm-hmm. This engine still, I believe, had the pre-service bulletin hydraulic pump. And the part number for the hydraulic pump documented on the carry forward list was incorrectly identified as a post-service bulletin hydraulic pump and that the post-service bulletin hydraulic pump was incorrectly listed as the type that Air Transat uses. So it had a pre-service bulletin pump, but the parts list said it was post-service bulletin, even though that was not the case. Okay. It's a paperwork snafu. Mess up. Mm -hmm. But
1: the pre-service pump, wasn't in, was it inherently broken?
0: No, it was fine. Just it needed to be updated. Okay. I, I, I'm going to get a little more into the specifics here in, in a little bit in this, uh, in this episode. But basically what happens is it doesn't fit quite right. It's, oh. <laughs> and there's, okay. a little, there's a little bracket that's supposed to be installed that moves the hydraulic lines up so that they don't rub up against the fuel line. It's basically, it moves those lines like three millimeters. It's like a tiny little space that it moves them up so that it prevents them from rubbing. But that obviously didn't happen here. You know, like I said, initially, Air Transat was just going to store this engine in case they needed it. And it turns out they needed it. They needed to do an engine replacement. Mm. During the replacement, an interference was noticed between the hydraulic pump and the fuel tube, which is exactly what we're talking about here. Yeah. Once it was realized that the difficulty with the hydraulic pump installation could be related to the differing service bulletin status, the lead technician attempted to view the relevant service bulletin. Uh However... There was a network problem at the time and he wasn't able to view it. What? Like, okay. Like a computer network. Like his computer basically, like it wasn't able to connect to the network so he wasn't able to look up the bulletin. So he asks the maintenance control center for assistance and neither the technician nor the maintenance control center considered accessing the service bulletin through the Rolls-Royce Engine Illustrated Parts Catalog on a standalone computer. So they had a parts catalog on a different computer that they didn't think to consult. They were just trying to get the network one. If they had consulted it, they would have seen that the fuel tube and the hydraulic lines needed to be replaced. The lead technician then contacted the engine controller, who seemed to have a good understanding of the situation, and he told the technician that the fuel tube needed to be replaced, and this was the only requirement for completion of the installation. They both agreed to the fuel tube transfer with no further reference to the service bulletin. So they didn't actually look it up. They asked a guy, and he's like, yeah, yeah, you just got to replace the fuel tube, and that's it, that's fine. So they replaced it, and then no one double-checks, like, was he right? (laughs) The fuel tube, but that was the thing that wasn't correct, right? Well, it was the hydraulic tubes that were rubbing up against it. They needed to replace those as well. And I believe there was also a little bracket they needed to install to maintain that separation. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. But of course, there was also time pressure to complete the work in time for a scheduled flight. And they also needed to get this out of the hangar because they had another plane coming in.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So, of course, this time pressure may have also played a role in reliance on this direct information about the service bulletin, rather than trying to resolve the existing problem of not being able to read the service bulletin. So, with the solution at hand, being behind schedule, and having spoken to the engine controller, the lead technician felt confident that the fuel tube replacement was the only remaining requirement to complete the hydraulic pump installation. So, again, this is like a level of things keep going wrong. The service was not totally done in Hong Kong. The parts were labeled wrong. It shows up here uh, at the maintenance hangar. They can't access the service bulletin. They ask a guy who's like, yeah. oh, yeah, you just have to do this one thing. It's like, oh, my, like any one of these things, any one of these steps could have gone differently.
1: Yeah, every little thing that could go wrong went wrong.
0: Right. Ju- but not so wrong that it alerted anyone. Right. It's like the engine still worked. Everything seemed to be okay. It's like, but it just this rubbing started, which, you know, leads to a problem. Let's be honest, meal planning and chips to the grocery store suck. And then you actually have to cook afterwards? Forget it. If you're also over the stress of putting dinner on the table, it's time to say hello to HelloFresh. HelloFresh delivers fresh, pre-measured ingredients and seasonal recipes right to your door. HelloFresh has no shortage of options. they got quick and easy meals, 15 to 20-minute dinners, breakfast on the go, all to easily fit into your busy schedule. And speaking of options, they got choices for all three meals a day, plus snacks, treats, ready-to-eat soup, salads, sandwiches, HelloFresh is seriously perfect for anyone and everyone. They also offer the flexibility you need to easily customize your order on the app within minutes. You can change your delivery day, food preferences, plant size, skip a week whenever you need. It really does save time. I don't have to worry about going to the store. I get my HelloFresh, stick it in the fridge, keep it around. and when I'm ready to go, bam, it's right there. Don't have to go out. Don't worry about missing anything, having to make a last minute run to the store. Everything you need, already measured, super easy to follow instructions. It's actually kind of fun. After a long day working, it's just like... I don't know, kind of a fun activity, kind of unwind and make yourself a meal. And then when you're done, you get to reward yourself by eating it. So go to hellofresh.com slash blackboxdown14. Use code blackboxdown14 for up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. That's hellofresh.com slash blackboxdown and the number one and the number four. Use code blackboxdown14 for 14 free meals and free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Whether it's for work or play, a lot of us are going to be on the move again this summer. My advice Take your Raycons, they'll make all the difference with a pair of Raycons, wireless earbuds. You get crisp, powerful beats at half the price of other premium audio brands. Raycons look great. They feel even better. They come in a range of colors and with customizable gel tips included for a comfortable in-ear fit. Uh, They're built to go wherever you go with quick and seamless Bluetooth pairing and a compact charging case. Uh, they're super comfortable. I got to say, whenever I use them, it's great to have different options on the earbud tips. I feel like my ears, I don't know, my, maybe my ears are stupid. They've got like a weird shape. But with Raycon, you don't have to worry about like a one size fit all tip. You can customize it with a gel tip and make sure it's the best fit possible. Uh, it's super comfortable. And let's face it, uh, I'm going to need them <laughs> whenever I'm on a plane or out and about. If I don't want to talk to anyone, just put my earbuds in, put my Raycons in. Don't worry about it. So listen up. Raycon's offering 15% off all their products for our listeners. And here's what you got to do to get it. Go to buyraycon.com slash blackboxdown. There you'll get 15% off your entire Raycon order. Such a good deal. Maybe you want to grab a pair and a spare. Do it. That's 15% off at buyraycon.com slash blackboxdown. Buyraycon.com slash blackboxdown.
1: We've got a trailer of our interview with Molly Bloom she ran infamous underground poker games that were attended by A-listers, mobsters, and eventually landed her in hot water with the FBI and used a lot of the tactics that she taught us here on the show. I went to LA, got hired by this guy who said, I need you to serve drinks at my poker game. So I'm like, okay, great. But then Ben Affleck walks in the room and Leo DiCaprio and A politician that was very well recognized. And I had this light bulb moment that I just need to control this game because it has this incredible hold over these people. Then the feds got involved and 10 days later, I get a call in the middle of the night. You need to come out with your hands up. I walk into my hallway. When my eyes adjusted to the high beam flashlights, I saw 17 FBI agents, semi-automatic weapons pointed at me.
0: If you want to learn more
1: about building rapport and generating the type of trust that Molly Bloom needed to run her multi-million dollar operation, check out episode 120 of the Jordan Harbinger Show.
0: The lead technician believed that the replacement of the fuel tube would establish the engine configuration in the post-mod status. So he thought once they replace that fuel tube, this engine would be updated, service bulletin will be done. Although it was recognized that the fuel tube from the replaced engine was different from the one being removed from the engine being installed. The aircraft installation parts catalog entry was not referenced. Adequate clearance between the fuel and hydraulic lines reportedly was achieved during the installation of the hydraulic pump line by applying some force to position the line and holding the line while applying torque to the B-nut. So basically, they're just trying to like manually separate these tubes so that they're not chafing on each other. Mm -hmm. The clearance subsequently was verified by the lead technician. Although it is not abnormal that a line be positioned to achieve clearances in this manner, If clamping is not used, the tendency is for a flexible line to straighten when pressurized. So they kind of like bent it to and used this uh, part called a B-nut to keep it from chafing. But it's fine when they're not pressurized. But when they become pressurized, they straighten out again. And they Mm. go back to that configuration where they're going to chafe against each other. And of course, this is critical when there's a 90 degree bend in the tube adjacent to the B-nut, as was the case for this installation. So they, they did something they thought was right uh-huh. that can be done, and it was fine when they were looking at it, but once the fluids come through and become pressurized, it undoes the work that they just did.
1: It's like too strong, of a, and
0: it bends it back? Right. It's like, a, you know, if you have a, a deflated balloon, you can bend it all kinds of ways, but once you, like, oh, yeah. inflate it, it's like, oh, yeah, it's going to want to pop back. You can bend it, but it's going to want to pop back into its, like, position.
1: That's a good comparison. Good analogy.
0: Ah, thanks. I just thought about it right now off the top of my head. <laughs> So, the risk associated with the application of force while installing mixed construction lines is not well known in the maintenance community, and it's not covered in the training of maintenance technicians. Although the marks on the fuel and hydraulic tubes suggested that some implement may have been used to assist in establishing clearance between the tubes, technicians denied that tools were used in this manner. So, the investigation can't be sure. You know, they, they see one thing, the technicians are saying another thing, the investigation can't be sure what was actually the case here. The pressurization of the hydraulic line would have been sufficient to cause the hydraulic line to move back to its natural position and come in contact with the fuel line, which resulted in the chafing and the failure of the fuel line. Based on flight data recorder data, it was determined that the fuel leak rate through this crack reached a maximum of about 13 metric tons per hour. So it was really a, a fast leak. It was leaking about a gallon a second. And when did it st- did it start
1: immediately once the plane started going?
0: No, it was uh, part way through the flight. I don't remember off the top of my head precisely when they speculate it started, but it was part way through the flight. Because what happens is as they're flying, you know, every so often the captain, the first officer, go through a checklist to make sure everything's going fine with the flight, and part of that checklist is they monitor their fuel levels in their different tanks. So, you know, when they started the flight, everything was going fine. Then it wasn't until partway through the flight that the imbalance happened. Okay. So, yeah, it was not leaking initially when they took off. It was uh, partway through this trip.
1: Is there, like, you know how they were switching it back and forth between the two engines because they were trying to mitigate fuel loss? Is there a version where they... Figured out which engine was actually leaking, and then made it the whole way.
0: Oh, okay, you ask a really good question, Chris. Uh, I was talking. You know, we have our our producer Dennis does a lot of the research for this, and uh, Dennis is actually a pilot, unlike myself. <laughs> <laughs> Dennis and I were talking before this episode, and like we said, everyone the plane that lands and everyone survives, and you know, there's just a couple of injuries. And they eventually, I'm, I'm going to get to this later in this in this episode. The, you know, the pilots are lauded as being heroes and for landing mm-hmm. this plane. I was of the opinion that this is kind of their fault, Uh, (laughs) that they should have turned off the crossfeed, that it seems, in retrospect at least, that it was very apparent it was the right, there was a leak on the right side of the plane, either the engine or the tank, and that they should have sealed it off, you know, closed the crossfeed valve, declared an emergency and still landed, but tried to save as much fuel as they could in the left tank to continue running the left engine. Yeah. Because a plane can fly fine with one engine. It's still safe. They're they're, they're rated for this. And it would have been a lot safer of a of a procedure. Again, that's retrospect. That's like, you know, what do they call it? Like Monday morning quarterback, like armchair. Yeah, yeah. Armchair coaching. They right? still landed the plane and no one died. So Right. Some people were hurt. But it it's, it it's it's easy to say in retrospect. I think that the captain became convinced that there was a computer error feeding him this bad information and that he maybe delayed his thought in acknowledging that there was actually a fuel leak until it was too late to do anything about it. Like, they didn't have enough fuel at that point. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't, I I, I can't say for certain, Chris. That's just my opinion. Yeah. So, the investigators did have some findings here as a result of this incident. The replacement engine was received in an unexpected pre-service bulletin configuration to which the operator had not been previously exposed. We covered that. They weren't used to dealing with this kind of engine. Mm -hmm. Neither the engine receipt nor the engine change planning process identified the differences in configuration between the engine being removed and the engine being installed, leaving complete reliance for detecting the differences upon the technicians doing the engine change. So again, they didn't document it correctly, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and some things were mislabeled. The lead technician relied on verbal advice during the engine change procedure rather than acquiring access to relevant service bulletin which was necessary to properly complete the installation of the post-mod hydraulic pump. We covered that as well. He relied on word of mouth instead of looking up the actual bulletin and accessing it firsthand himself. The installation of the post-mod hydraulic pump and the post-mod fuel tube with the pre-mod hydraulic tube assembly resulted in a mismatch between the fuel and hydraulic tubes. And again, if they had installed everything correctly, there would have been enough clearance and they wouldn't have rubbed. They wouldn't have caused this crack. The mismatch installation of the pre-mod hydraulic tube and the post-mod fuel tube resulted in the tubes coming into contact with each other, which resulted in a fracture of the fuel tube and the fuel leak, initiating event which led to fuel exhaustion. Time pressures, difficulties in accessing the service bulletin, and the apparent knowledge of the engine specialist influenced the lead technician to curtail his search for the service bulletin and to rely on verbal advice. They're really <laughs> driving this one home, by the way. They uh-huh. keep talking about this. Uh, just so you know, it's like this really should not happen. Not being able to understand and resolve the unusual oil readings in the right engine contributed to the crew's uncertainty. Again, this kind of leads into what I said. They thought maybe there was a sensor problem, something strange was going on on that side. I've seen interviews with other pilots talking about this incident where they, I I saw one pilot who, you know, flew for like 30 years and he said he'd never seen error messages like this pop up on a flight. He said Mm -hmm. he'd heard of them, but he'd never seen it firsthand himself. So it was definitely an unusual situation they were in. Yeah. The flight crew did not detect that a fuel problem existed until the fuel advisory was displayed and the fuel imbalance was noted on the fuel e page. There was not a clear, unambiguous indication or warning that a critical fuel leak existed. So again, you know, the computer on the plane's just telling them there's an imbalance. There's nothing telling them, "Hey, there's way more fuel going out than should be at this, you know, they they all this, all they see is the sensor's telling them mm-hmm. there's less fuel in the tank. There's nothing saying fuel's being consumed way faster than it should be."
1: Yeah, there's, that doesn't, that's not a thing that shows it, huh?
0: Right. But, I mean, I think it kind of relies on them to make that assumption. Like, right, if you're driving your car down the road and you see your fuel tank going down really fast, you think, hey, I might be leaking fuel. Yeah. could Is it something that they could see, like, if they just watched it?
1: I, I mean, I'm just imagining a car fuel thing and it's just going down really fast, right?
0: Like, you would see that. Could they not have just looked at it? Yeah, they were looking at it and they could see it was going down. but. Again, they thought maybe it was a sensor malfunction or something, you know, wasn't right. But the other engine wasn't doing it. Right, but they had had that engine oil and engine temperature warning on the same side where the leak was. So they thought maybe all the sensors on that side were messed up. Oh, okay. It's easy to say in retrospect, in the moment, who knows? The flight crew did not recognize that a fuel leak situation existed and carried out the fuel imbalance procedure from memory, which resulted in the fuel from the left tanks being fed to the leak in the right engine. And again, the checklist says, if there's a fuel leak, not to open that cross-feed valve. But they didn't know there was a leak. They mm-hmm. assumed it was a sensor error. Conducting the fuel imbalance procedure by memory negated the defense of the caution note in the fuel imbalance checklist that may have caused the crew to consider timely actioning of the fuel leak procedure. So again... They actually went by memory. They didn't go down the checklist. If they had seen that message I was just talking about, maybe they would have thought, oh, there's a fuel leak. Maybe we shouldn't open the crossfeed valve. Yeah. Although there were a number of other indications that a significant fuel loss was occurring, the crew did not conclude that a fuel leak situation existed. Not actually in the fuel leak procedure was a key factor that led to fuel exhaustion. This kind of plays into what I was saying earlier, how I felt like the crew's kind of at fault here. <laughs> yeah. They kind of went off of memory. They didn't acknowledge that there might actually really be a fuel leak, which led to their exhaust, the fuel exhaustion. The flight crew members had never experienced a fuel leak situation during operations or training, which contributed to their not being able to conclude that a fuel leak existed and that actually the fuel leak procedure was required. The lack of training in the symptoms of fuel leak situations resulted in this crew not being adequately prepared for the situation encountered on the occurrence of this flight. So again, it's kind of re-emphasizing the training aspect here. Yeah. The captain's skill in conducting the engine's out glide to a successful landing averted a catastrophic accident and saved the lives of passengers and crew. Uh, I didn't talk about this earlier, but much like the Gimli Glider incident, which we covered before, this captain was also a glider pilot, so he was used to gliding without engine power in his free time, not a, just yeah, yeah, not in passenger plane. There was
1: another one, another incident we did where the pilot just happened to be experienced with gliding. What was it? The Gimli Glider. The it was Gimli a, glider? the Air Canada one.
0: Yeah their Canada flight where they land on the racetrack and the boys are on the bicycles in front of the plane.
1: Yeah we in Microsoft Flight Simulator we did a, a crash simulation thing which is our kind of special programming for roosterseat.com first members uh, where we tried to do some gliding and it's
0: it's hard. It's hard I think if, if I remember right on that one I ended up ditching into the lake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, I think you're, you're a good like. We could see the runway. Yeah, we it was couldn't, visible. We didn't make it there. Yeah, but you can head over to RoosterTeeth.com and look for that if you want If you want to see it. I think it's also in our link tree if you want to click that. Are you in your link tree? Link tree. It's got everything. <laughs> it does. The last finding that the investigators had here was the first officer provided full and effective support to the captain during the engines out glide and successful landing. So a little shout out to the first officer there. The investigation revealed that the cause of the accident was a fuel leak in the number 2 engine caused by an incorrect part installed in the hydraulic system by the Air Transat maintenance staff as part of routine maintenance. The engine had been replaced with a spare engine lent by Rolls-Royce from an older model, which did not include a hydraulic pump. Despite the lead mechanic's concerns, Air Transat authorized the use of a part from a similar engine, an adaptation that did not maintain adequate clearance between the hydraulic lines and the fuel lines. This lack of clearance on the order of millimeters from the intended part, like I said, I think it was three millimeters, allowed chafing between the lines to rupture the fuel line, causing the leak. And just for for reference for, I guess, our American listeners, three millimeters is like a tenth of an inch.
1: Like not even your pinky nail.
0: No, no, way smaller than that. Yeah. Pilot error is also one of the lead causes of the accident for failing to identify the fuel leak, for neglecting to shut down the crossfeed after the first engine flame out, as well as for failing to follow the standard operating procedure in possibly more than one case.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Kind of some of the things that I was talking about a little earlier. Yeah, There were some actions that were taken by the time that the final report was published. Transport Canada initiated a special purpose audit of air transat maintenance and operations. Uh, none of the findings of this audit played a role in this fuel exhaustion occurrence. So they just wanted to go through air transats maintenance, make sure everything was up to standards and that there, was no, there were no other problems there in their maintenance facility. Canadian air operators inspected all of their A330 aircraft to ensure that the same mechanical conditions that may have contributed to the air transit emergency landing did not exist on other aircraft. Which I imagine, this must have been a pain for all of the other mechanics who installed everything properly. you are like, mm-hmm. oh my god, because this one idiot <laughs> installed the wrong part, now I have to take apart every A330 engine we have and make sure we did it right. Every single plane. Yeah, well, all the A330 aircraft. So they they went through and made sure that all the engines had the correct installation in them. Transport Canada directed Air Transat to immediately implement special training sessions on extended range operations, fuel management, and diversion procedures. So just, again, have some extra training here. Mm -hmm. On August 30th, 2001, special training sessions were conducted on fuel management and diversion procedures for all of its flight crews operating its Boeing 757, A310, and A330 aircraft on extended twin-engine operations. So they did this training really quickly. Mm -hmm. Fuel leak scenarios have been integrated into the initial and recurrent theoretical and simulator training programs for all Air Transat company aircraft, which is good. You want people to to train on it in simulators. Mm -hmm. Airbus required a one-time visual inspection to verify that no interference exists between the fuel and hydraulic lines on all A330 aircraft equipped with Rolls-Royce 700 series engines. Rolls-Royce issued a worldwide communication advising operators in part to check all engines to ensure that adequate clearance exists between the fuel and hydraulic lines. So, again, Rolls-Royce and Airbus are advising everyone to check their engines. So, again, this is more mechanics. are like, oh, no, we got to go check. This one guy messed it up. Now we all got to open <laughs> all these engines and look at them because we have, we're told to just to be safe. Which, as a passenger, that's reassuring. Yeah, <laughs> but- yeah, it's good they did that. But I'm sure right. they're, like, they're like, gosh darn it, Terry. <laughs> okay. I, don't, I don't know his name's really Terry, but that just seemed like a... I don't know. We'll, we'll go with that. Yeah. So they had a few recommendations uh, here. Mandate the implementation of the fuel onboard discrepancy caution alert for all A330 aircraft and mandate the incorporation of a fuel loss alert for other Airbus aircraft with similar fuel system design. So just have an alert like we talked about earlier. If there's a uh, fuels being lost or if there's some kind of discrepancy, have an alert saying, hey, we're using more fuel than we should be. Yeah. Review the adequacy of aircraft indications and warning systems and procedures to detect fuel used slash fuel loss discrepancy situations. Review the capability of these systems to provide clear indications as to the causes of these situations and to review the capability of these systems to provide alerts at a level consumerate with the criticality of a fuel loss situation. So really talking about alerting the crew and letting them know that this is a big deal when this happens. Review flight crew operating manuals and checklist procedures to ensure that they contain adequate information related to fuel leak situations. Review flight crew training programs to ensure that they adequately prepare crews to diagnose and take appropriate actions to mitigate the consequences of fuel leak events. And amend regulations and standards to require crew training on fuel leak events. Review the automated fuel transfer systems on Airbus aircraft to ensure that the systems are able to detect abnormal fuel transfers and that systems exist and procedures are in place to inhibit abnormal transfers and that the crews are notified at an appropriate warning level of abnormal fuel transfers. So in this case, you know, even if there was a leak on the right side, the left side should have chimed in and be like, hey, what's going on? There's a lot of fuel <laughs> leaving here. Even uh-huh. though the leaks down on the left side, you know, it's still losing fuel. It should have alerted as well. Yeah. Consider merging the Airbus fuel imbalance and fuel leak checklist procedures into one procedure containing at the top of the procedure the conditions that would suggest the presence of a fuel leak. So this particular incident was the longest passenger aircraft glide without engines. They glided for nearly 75 miles or 120 kilometers.
1: 75 miles. That's a long time.
0: That's, uh, what is that, like from here to San Antonio? How far is San Antonio? <laughs> right? Yeah. We talked about the Air Canada flight, which was called uh, the Gimli Glider. This particular incident uh, was nicknamed the Azores glider because they landed on the Azores island.
1: I guess they were higher up.
0: Yeah, they were higher up. If I remember right, the Gimli glider, they had to divert. They were trying to make it to one airport. Then they ended up diverting to that abandoned uh, airfield where they're doing the car race. But yeah, there's also different planes. It's an A330. I want to say that the uh, Gimli glider was a 767. You know, it's a, a lot of little factors uh, contribute to that. Air Transat accepted responsibility for the accident and was fined $250,000 Canadian dollars by the Canadian government, which was, as of the time, uh, the largest fine in Canadian history. The pilots returned to a hero's welcome from the Canadian press as a result of their successful unpowered landing. Uh, in 2002, Captain Pichet was awarded the Superior Airmanship Award by the Airline Pilots Association. Again, I think this was kind of their fault. I'm
1: yeah, it's <laughs> like they did a really good job of handling the situation after they messed it up.
0: Yes, the aircraft was repaired and returned to service with Air Transat in December of 2001 with the nickname Azores Glider. Uh, the aircraft was ultimately placed into storage March of 2020, so it, it does not fly any longer. It only glides. <laughs> that's uh, that's Air Transat 236, uh, another instance of a plane running out of fuel at altitude. But like the Gimli Glider, everyone survives miraculously.
1: If they hadn't made it to land, if they would had to ditch the ocean, what are the chances? I mean... I know it's speculative, but that they would have uh, not had any deaths, like if they'd been able to hit the water and, and it'd been okay.
0: It would have been, in my opinion, nearly impossible. I know that, you know, that U.S. Airways flight was Sully, you know, people picture that landing on, on the Hudson and everyone survived that. But if you remember, we had a, a very similar incident we covered in Black Box Down. We covered Ethiopian Airlines flight 961 which was oh, the Boeing 767 yeah. that got hijacked, and the hijackers wanted to go to Australia, and the pilot's like, we don't mm-hmm. have the fuel to go to Australia. And there's footage of that hitting the water. When the plane comes down and it's going to ditch into the water, there's a number of ways that this can happen. But, you know, if the tail comes down first, it's going to hit the water and potentially yeah. break off. It got real messed up. Right. If, or in the case of the Ethiopian flight, when the engines hit the water, like the water rushes into them, like they're like big scoops, and it forces the plane to fall over and start rolling. I mean, it's really bad. I think in the Ethiopian Airlines, you know, incident, what is it like? Less than a third of the people survived that one. Uh, yeah. So uh, the the chances of everyone surviving in a ditching extremely slim. Okay. The chances of anyone surviving in a ditching is still really low. Oh, <laughs> like wow. Yeah, it's okay. it's it, it, it's not not ideal by any stretch of the imagination. So uh, it's good that they that there, they were in range of an airport and were able to land. Before we go, there is something I do want to remind people. We have a, a live panel we're going to be doing Saturday, July 17th at 1 p.m. Central uh, for Black Box Down. as part of an event called RTX. You can go to rtxevent.com to get more information. And you can you can watch it online, on your phone, on your computer, wherever you want. You'll find all the information at rtxevent.com. Again, that's Saturday, July 17th at 1 p.m. We also have another panel we're doing. It's not specifically Black Box Down. Uh, we're doing another panel called Cults, Crashes, and Conspiracies with a couple of other podcasters that we like. We're doing a, that one with Cult Podcast and Red Web. That one is July 15th at 12 p.m. Central. That's also for RTX. You can go get information on that at rtxevent.com. Uh, if you want to get a little more Black Box Down in your life. But thanks for listening, everybody. Don't forget, follow us on social media at Black Box Down BlackBoxDownPod. Uh, what I would say, we're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Yeah. We need to start a TikTok, Chris. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> good morning from hell has a tiktok do you yeah oh look at you guys what do you put on there like uh clips from the podcast yeah little social clips and stuff oh man now i do need to register before a listener registers it ah crap (laughs) all right well thanks for listening everybody we'll see y'all next time